Welcome to the System Speak podcast, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. If you are new to the podcast, we recommend starting at the beginning episodes and listen in order to hear our story and what we have learned through this endeavor. Current episodes may be more applicable to longtime listeners and are likely to contain more advanced topics, emotional or other triggering content, and or reference earlier episodes that provide more context to what we are currently learning and experiencing. As always, please care for yourself during and after listening to the podcast. Thank you. Dr. Rick Huffler is a clinical psychologist graduating from Forest Institute of Professional Psychology in 1986. He has maintained a private practice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin area for the past 30 years, specializing in psychological trauma since 1986 as co-manager of an inpatient program treating survivors of abuse at Rogers Memorial Hospital where he also co-managed an inpatient program treating children and adolescents until 1995. He continues to treat adults, children, and adolescents suffering from disorders associated with severe developmental trauma, including a special emphasis on dissociative disorders in private practice. This specialty was also applied within the Wisconsin Department of Corrections from 2008 to 2020. He has provided supervision consultation to therapists and case managers from a variety of agencies in the Milwaukee area for the past 20 years, with consultation affiliations having expanded internationally. Rick is a faculty member of the Wisconsin School of Professional Psychology in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he teaches courses in traumas and dissociation. He is a member of ISSTD and was elected to their board of directors in 2016. Since 2014, he has acted as a moderator for the virtual book club sponsored by ISSTD. He has presented professionally on topics related to trauma and dissociation 
locally, nationally, and internationally. He has published papers relating to working with trauma dissociation in forensic settings and is in process of releasing a paper regarding the regulatory aspects of shame in dissociative disorders. Welcome, Dr. Rick Koffler. Okay, very good. Hi, everyone. This is Rick Hoffler. I'm a psychologist in practice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I've been seeing and working with uh, complex trauma and dissociative disorders in particular for more than 30 years in various venues, in inpatient venues, um, as well as prison venues and outpatient private practice. So I've seen a variety of people who are very traumatized in, uh, in a variety of place settings. So that's kind of my blurb. I'm starting to write a little bit more, um, and um, that's been gratifying too. How did you first get involved with helping people or even learning about trauma and dissociation? Well, uh, it's a little embarrassing to say, but um, um, in my first years as a licensed psychologist, uh, I was steeped in inpatient adolescent treatment. And um, uh, myself and some colleagues began an adolescent program in a small private psych hospital and did very innovative things. This is back in the mid 80s. And um, uh, was psychodynamically based, and it was uh, done without seclusion rooms or restraints or even locked doors. And so acting out was always dealt with in a, in a very intensive psychodynamic form. So um, we were pretty successful in that, in that uh, area. It turns out that when we would do um, weekly family sessions, with these kids that we ran into an alarming number, especially mothers who reported um, childhood abuse. Now, back then, uh, nothing much was being done, especially on an inpatient level about that. And so we, being the young Turks that we were, we decided this was a good market niche because no one else was doing it. And even though we knew very little about it, you know, we knew that um, we wanted to learn about it and wanted to create an environment that would be accepting. And that's what we did. So um, we learned from the people we treated, essentially. At least I did. And um, I, I had been exposed to DID prior to that uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, during my training, but uh, nothing very um, intensive. And so we we learned by that, and that, that program ran for, I think, between 88 and 95. And after that, uh, managed care sort of obliterated everything uh, meaningful in hospital work. And um, we got displaced. Um, I did do some consulting. I, one of my colleagues was a psychiatrist who specialized in eating disorders, and he'd established a residential program for that back then. And uh, he called on me to consult with um, patients he had that uh, had 
complex trauma or dissociative disorders. So I sort of kept my feet wet in the, in that way on the inpatient level. Um, so that's how I learned about it. How do you explain about dissociation to people who are just learning what that is? Mm-hmm. It depends on if you're talking about clinicians or if you're talking about lay people. There's a, a difference. With clinicians, if they usually when they ask, uh, and I have quite a few supervisees and consultees, um, I'm, I supervise a pretty large clinic, about 20 therapists. And so um, because I'm locally known for treating this population, we get a lot of referrals in our clinic for, with, for that issue. And so the therapists that uh, I supervise are getting that fallout. And uh, thankfully, they've taken an interest in it. And so we, um, we discuss this a lot. And um, um, so typically, they are encountering things they've never really seen before. Because uh, when people are referred for that purpose, they're not hiding quite as much. And so it's a little more out in the open. Um, And so what I try to help them understand is um, how to to lean in to the subjective experiences of, of their patients. Now, as we know, dissociative disorders or dissociative dissociation as a process um, precludes much subjectivity, at least it limits it to a great degree. And one of the things that psychotherapy has really gotten away from in the mainstream is that, is that you know, it typically focuses more on behavior and thought. And while those things are, are important, they, they miss the underpinnings of those expressions and uh, so what I tend to help therapists focus on is the subjective experiences of their clients or patients and what that helps them do is that it helps them see um, the ways that their patients um, self-protect from that process of subjective discovery. And I think that's hugely important. Um, And when we lean in to people uh, with the intent of examining subjective experiences, and we are met with what we typically call resistances, which I call self-protective mechanisms, uh, we have to also lean into those mechanisms. So they beg the question of how did you learn to protect yourself that way? What were the circumstances that compelled you to do so? And so what I try to help uh, people understand, especially clinicians, is that dissociation is a way to um, circumvent subjectivity. And I think that's a hugely important um, factor that uh, many therapists don't really grasp very well. And um, um, and 
becomes kind of intimidating for many, at least beginning therapists. Because when we lean into subjectivity, we usually get a lot of anxiety in response. And we also get a lot of shame in response. Um, and so learning how to work with, with anxious self-protective mechanisms is really important. And, uh, and shame is, is usually the mechanism that underscores that. This, this is actually why I asked you to be on the podcast because of what you share about shame. I, where do you even want to start with that? It's so tricksy. Well, I, I, it is, and only because it, it, uh, there are many ways. And, you know, uh, Nathanson, many decades, well, 92, I think it was, wrote about shame defenses and, um, it's a huge, it was a huge contribution and it helps us, um, conceptualize how this works. But I think that, um, what we have to understand is that shame is an acute experience initially. And we've all, all experienced it. You know, when we, um, bring a feeling or an idea to, to a relational moment and it is dismissed abruptly or criticized and the feeling that we have when we are presenting that to another person when we have a, a certain amount of anticipation or excitement about sharing something with somebody and it is kind of thrown away what happens to the feeling that we bring to that moment is that it immediately deflates it's like falling off a cliff it's very painful because of that and it's an experience that most people don't want to repeat. Now, when we, we think of uh, kids who are being traumatized by caregivers, uh, that children have a hardwired, hardwired expectancy to be received and accepted, that becomes a huge issue. So when you have a child who is exposed to persistent shaming in that regard, and even abuse that accompanies it, um, it, it deflates the sense of self. It's not just deflating affect in the moment, it's deflating affect and the self, because it is done repeatedly. So this becomes what chronic shame looks like. Chronic shame means that that you learn quickly how to not be visible to the people you need to be visible to. And that's, that's a huge dilemma. It's part of what, um, of what compels uh, dissociative self states, because it's impossible for one mind to, um, to contain feelings um, while at the same time knowing you're going to get annihilated if you show them. So you can't house those two, those, those two frames in the same mind. You can't. Um, so what ends up happening is that because when we're little, we feel things all the time. 
And uh, not that we don't as adults, but as kids, we need help with it. We, we don't know how to regulate them. And so as kids, um, kids learn how to not only be invisible to, to an abusive caregiver, they also learn how to be invisible to themselves. And this is one of the hallmarks of, of dissociative process, when you become invisible to yourself. Uh, Rich Chaffetz says, you know, um, coined that in his in his book, um, calling it uh, a mind hiding from itself. And that's exactly what happens. And that's very shame based. In my view, and it becomes a chronic orientation. And um, what I'm also what I've been presenting about and also write about is that um that kind of hiding becomes regulatory because it's something you have to rely on 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 an ongoing basis and this is what chronic shame really does is it regulates affect uh and dissociation and shame work together in this in this regard so you have dissociation that compartmentalizes mental activity or affects and then you have shame that keeps it deflated and associative systems in DID in particular um, typically um, are constructed in a way to prevent um, attachments from occurring and uh, at best you have rote attachments or you have accommodating attachments um but uh it's imperative when you grow up like that to not have a visible self either to to yourself or to others and so dissociative systems become based on disallowing that kind of visibility either within or without and this is what um uh what we see protector altars um orchestrating and so many times protector altars um are you know we we tend to think of traumatized people as being as over interpreting danger and they're externally hyper vigilant um my take on that is that yes that's true but it is also equally true that they are internally hyper vigilant and they are hyper vigilant to science of enlivened affect because that is anathema to uh, what a dissociative system is designed to do and so when you this this is why we see so much um in in did this is why we see so much self-harm go on it's it's why we see um very diminutive sorts of presentations. Um, it's because there is a mandate to have a self that is not visible. And uh, when there is when there is the threat of visibility, even internally, so like you know, uh, a young child alter is beginning to cry or as happens in psychotherapy 
we're, we are engendering attachment. We're engendering subject, subjective awareness. And so as, as psychotherapy progresses, you'll see at some point, you'll see protector altars protest either secretly or, or externally. And secretly, usually happens secretly first, covertly, but they begin to act out internally. So after sessions, they, your client may say that they were cutting themselves or drinking heavily or doing something to, um, to deflate affect. Many times protector alters use the rhetoric of abusers who um, acutely shamed them as kids. They use the same language. They use the same threats. And um, um, this is how um, many dissociative people regulate their affect. So just to, I want to recap a little bit of what you said, sort of in shared language of the podcast for listeners who maybe have a dissociative disorder and um, are maybe overwhelmed a little bit by all of that because it was so dense and so good and there was so much in that. But what you are saying when we, and this is why I asked you to come on the podcast, what, what you are saying is when we talk about shame with dissociative disorders, we are not talking about being ashamed of ourselves in a stigma kind of way. We are talking about shame in a process way because of relational trauma when we were little. Yes. Part of the process of making ourselves more invisible so that we are safe and also because of the, um, let me think how to say this in terms that people are familiar with who listen to the podcast. Um, so, so when we talk about abuse, there are things that like bad things that happen. But also we had Steve Gold on the podcast and he talked about how deprivation is more than just neglect. It's the, yes. the good that is missing. And yes. And so with relational trauma, we have this kind of deprivation and these these interactions that instill shame in a way either for control or as part of deprivation and neglect where um, that, like you said, that deflating of the ego, not just not just that moment of um affect or my feelings being hurt but literally not being tended to i don't exist i can't exist i don't have permission to exist i'm not allowed space to exist and the shame in that process that then becomes part of the process of how our internal system literally exists yes that's that's what i've observed and um you know, unfortunately, once uh, therapy is underway and um, our clients begin to know themselves to some degree and they reach out for help in, the, say, the psychiatric realm because uh, there are some things they need help with symptomatically. And um, and then the, then what, what you mentioned earlier it takes place. But it's secondary, you know, it's secondary shame. 
and unfortunately it does occur and so and not just professionally but you know with other people and so you i'm sure um that your listeners who uh, are DID or have DID can attest to this, that they don't want, you know, their friends to know, or at least not many of them. Uh, they, they keep it rather secret. And uh, it's not hard to understand why, because it's often met with, met with, uh, what, are you kidding? And, um, you know, they, they, no one wants to be seen as, as an alien. And sometimes that's how other people make make you feel. So yeah, there's that level of it too. But the primary issue here is is that um, there's a fear of visibility. There's a sort of anxiety that people who are suffering from chronic shame, whether they're dissociative or not, experience. And you know, we we tend to. Uh, experience anxiety when um, when there are affects that are momenting and we have decided not to acknowledge them because they weren't acknowledged by others and when we when that happens it creates pressure and uh, pressure creates anxiety uh, anxiety is sort of like emotional white noise. It's it's like feeling that it's not differentiated. Um, the other thing that happens as a shame, as shame-based anxiety is that um, because attachment is a hardwired thing, in other words, we are hardwired to connect. And, in, and if we do not do that, we have to fight against that instinct all the time. And so when we, when people who are chronically shamed, when they know that they have to interface with people, they have a sense of dread. It becomes, there's anxiety, but it has a different color to it. It feels like dread, like something terrible is about to happen. And that comes from shame. That comes from the, from the fear of, of visibility. And uh, that, that's pretty universal experience for people who are very chronically shamed. I also want to make mention of something that I, I really like Steve, Steve Gold and what he has to say. And I, I read his book when it first came out and I found it very important and I still do. And um, um, the idea that um, uh, of deprivation it's deprivation of experience, really, and I think that's his point. And the deprivation of experience happens because when you don't really have a co- cohesive sense of self in order to experience uh, your life, in other words, when you can't afford to know what you feel about anything, you can go through the motions of it, and people who are who are persistently traumatized and or dissociative know this only too well that they go through the motions of life but they don't really feel it they don't really experience it and so they miss out on quite a bit you can learn things in school you can learn skills but you don't really feel it Uh, i have a good case example of that in one of my current patients who was um, 
very egregiously um, abused um, by an, an organized group that uh, had a relationship who was related to her family of origin. And uh, so she was abused that way without anyone else knowing about it. And she didn't, uh, she was dissociated from it as well. But she, she knew from an early age that uh, she, she was just scared all the time. And, um, you know, she, she had, a, you know, a, a good enough family. Uh, but they weren't terrible. You know, it was kind of a very busy family. And uh, that's what enabled her to be abused under their noses. But she um, would say, you know, there are things I, I liked, and, but I couldn't really experience them. And she, you know, like she had a particular example of her brother, her twin brother, actually, who um, um, and walking to school one day during the fall, stopped her on the way and said, can you smell that? Can you smell that, that smell of fall in the air? And the leaves and, and all of that. It just, I love that smell. It just, it just makes me feel good. And, and she could say, yeah, I smell it, but didn't really have that meaning to her. And as we, as she is working with me and she is learning how to engage her subjective self, now things have a totally different meaning to her. She's discovering foods that she liked as a kid, but now when she eats them, it means so much more. So there's a depth of experience that she's regaining. So I think that's what Steve is talking about. There's a deprivation of experience because there's a deprivation of subjective, uh, of the subjective experience of anything for people who grow up like that. I think that... Part of that deprivation, too, comes with the lack of repair with relational trauma. And so that's part of the experience that's missing. I'm trying to think of a safe and neutral example for listeners. Um, my youngest daughter, I was picking her up at the airport, and she was excited to see me and ran from her gate to where I was walking towards her down the hall but one of those carts that beeps and carries people was coming down and it was going pretty fast. And so I put yeah. my hands out and shouted for her to stop because I didn't want her to get run over. And she stopped, but she also just was so broken hearted when she was trying yeah. to be excited to see me. And um, that's that image that comes to mind when when you say a deflated ego. She was sad, like her affect was sad, and she was she had tears because I had said no when she was trying to run to me. But she also curled up in on herself because she in that it was a moment of rejection, a moment of not being wanted. But because I tend to her, I could get to her and I could hug her and hold her and talk to her and show yeah. her what happened and explain. And very quickly she was okay. But when yeah. we have relational trauma with bad things happening and, and that deprivation and then the lack of nurturing and the lack of repair, we're just left in that curled up state. Yes, you are. And so I wanted to find a way to describe what we mean when we say deflated ego. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's a fl- deflated. It's just a deflated ego. That's the uh, ego is more uh, man-made. <laughs> what I'm talking about is a deflated sense of self, which is, I think, a little different. Because a, a sense of self is what we feel. It's who we feel ourselves to be. It's not a skill set. It's not what we're proud of. It's just a. It's just who we are in a felt sense, and that's what goes away. Of course, the ego goes along with it. Um, but what you're describing is very, very. T- it's a. It's a, an iconic example of acute shame, and the reason we're hardwired for it is because it's an. It, it's a. It gives us a way of inhibiting behaviors and feelings that uh, that in that in a, any any particular moment are either unnecessary or dangerous and so in this case it was dangerous for her to run to you even though she was excited about having a reunion with you and um, there it's a it's an excited feeling it's an excited affect and it's attachment based and so shame is what parents use to shape behavior, right? So, because um, kids are uh, not always aware of the consequences of what they of what they do and what they want, and so it's an inhibitory um, mechanism that uh, that caregivers have to use on occasion. And what it does essentially is it uses misattunement in a very um in a very deliberate way and so when you know one of the examples i give is you know a a toddler who is just all about good feelings and exploring and finding interest and excitement and novelty and they're exploring the living room and and mom is watching you know the best thing in the world for them is to find something new um touch it and then look back at mom and mom smiles and it amplifies the feeling that's how we work so what happens you know when you know that child reaches for the glass vase on the coffee table and looks back at mom and says isn't this cool and mom it doesn't have that same smile anymore and it's a misattunement and it deflates the affect it, ex- it, it deflates the excitement and the interest and everything stops like the world stops and so the point is made and so the behavior is is stopped then ideally mom comes over and says it's okay i still love you i just didn't want you to break my vase and then the the affect is reinflated the attachment is is um is attuned again and then exploring can continue. So, you know, instead of, you know, mom coming over and standing over the kid and screaming at him and sending him to his room, you know, then it's not repaired. So, um, um, shame is a, is an inhibitor. And, um, and when it's used chronically, it's an it's a chronic inhibition, and so it's a way to live in an inhibited state. What makes it uh, in a in a perverse sense, kind of, it becomes regulatory. 
So rather than using it as a tool for what's necessary or for safety, it becomes a weapon. It can become a weapon. You bet. And it often does in, in abused kids. That's interesting. I I also I I was laughing to myself that I I dissociated enough just in the conversation to to use ego instead of self because mm-hmm. that's still so vague for me. Like I've made a lot of progress, but that's that's still so slippery for me. It was easier to land on ego than it was self. So I wanted to thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, sure. The the other thing I noticed with what you were just sharing about the toddler in the living room story was I think that sometimes as a survivor myself in my own parenting of my children, I think I sometimes so pre- wanted to prevent that deflating that what ended up happening was struggling to give them a sense of boundaries like to to teach boundaries because there are some things that are necessary and safe and i love how like that language really helps me hold on to that but what i have had to shift since being in therapy is that it's that some things are deflating and in a in a healthy way and that's okay and what i've had to learn is repair and how to help them reinflate and Yes, yes. I don't know, like, yet how to do that for myself very well. That's still a struggle, which, of course, makes it hard to teach them. But how would you speak to that for survivors or clinicians helping survivors? Um, it, it really, it, it, for me anyway, it, it, shame repair is what psychotherapy is for me. That's that's really what it is in a nutshell. And I, I know there's far more complexity to it, but this is really the process of it, in my view. And um, um, because what ends up happening in 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 dissociative folks is that in psychotherapy, when you are engaging them in a subjective sense, you're trying to help them see themselves subjectively. And, um, and they, and when they manage to do so, they want to shame themselves pretty quickly afterward. And so, um, sometimes there are admonitions that come from me. And I, what I try to do is I try to head it off at the pass because it's like, um, anytime, you know, it, it's sort of like, you know, that, that living room thing, you know, when the toddler is reaching for the glass vase, you know, he's fully, it, it feels like a good thing. But if you've reached for that glass vase before and, and, you're, and you're attracted to it again, um, it can f- feel okay, but there, it's also going to feel uh, dangerous too. So our, our patients go through the same thing when they're growing and they begin to say things they've never said before, um, uh, feel things they've never felt before, or at least not for a long time, or you know, fully embody some, some experience. Um, I usually um, say, 
well, that's really cool. You, you did something that you're not used to doing. And uh, I'm really glad you could do that. Now tell me this. When you, when you look inside, is there any part of you that either feels afraid of that or objects to it? And can, can you give voice to that? So what I'm trying to do is, is head off the shame response before it is enacted. That's I think a, that's hugely important. I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize to do. Because when you have someone who is, has been in hiding and regulating themselves by hiding, um, when you invite them out and they start to come out, uh, it, it scares the hell out of them. Even if it feels good, it still scares them. And you still have various protector states who are going to object to it. And even if they're being quiet in the moment, they won't be once they leave your office. And so I'm always asking, what was it like for you to say something novel? What was it like for you to feel this when you haven't felt it since you were three? What is it like for you to say something out loud that has always been forbidden? What is that like for you to do? I use that that sentence, that question, over and over. I must use it a hundred times a day. What was that like for you? So you're you have someone experiencing something relatively new that has always been scary for them, and then you have them reflect on the experience of having done it and reflecting enough and asking. You need to ask sometimes. You know, do you notice anything any, anything in your mind that doesn't that doesn't really like what you just did. I think that hugely significant in in um, some of what we've been talking about recently on the podcast, even about religious trauma, how uh-huh. we grow up in that context with such binary thinking of everything, what is good and what is bad, when some things are just developmental. Yes, things are learned. So it behooves us as therapists to always ask, even when things are going very swimmingly, and especially when they're going swimmingly, I ask, what's that like for things for you to start feeling better or for you to start feeling things you're not used to? What's it like for you? Is this part of why when things are going well, there's sort of, I mean, I know there's the, pattern of the abuse dynamic of of waiting for the other shoe to drop someone is going to get set off something bad is going to happen but also internally of that shame response like you were talking about earlier like littles starting starting to become aware of littles or or littles reaching out or littles connecting that it indicates becoming more visible and engendering attachment but in response to that like the protectors not necessarily and always trying to be punitive so much as being being visible is not safe. We have to sort of yes, contain yes. that and squash it back down. And shame yes. is how we do that because it's what people used against us when we were little. That's right. And it works. <laughs> it works quickly. So that's how it's regular, regulatory. Yeah, absolutely. That's my viewpoint. Wow. What... 
What else do we need to know about shame or clinicians need to understand about shame? You know, uh, shame can play out in, uh, in different ways, too. I mean, again, uh, Nathanson pointed out different brands of shame defense. And um, um, most of them, most of, the, most of those uh, mechanisms that we're used to in DID um, are very self-punitive or they're hiding. So, you know, the four, the, uh, he suggested uh, an axis of, of four different ways that this happens. Um, one is withdrawing or hiding, which is obvious. Uh, another shame defense, because you're trying to prevent further shame. Um, another is just avoiding. And avoiding can take many different forms. Avoiding can be using substances, um, OCD, you know, becoming very externally focused, in other words. Um, just to uh, not pay attention to what your internal life is, is doing. Um, and then on, on another axis, we have um, uh, what do you do? It, this is something that, well, this is something I should probably mention too, that um, being shamed repeatedly is also, uh, usually when abuse accompanies shame, it's humiliation. And humiliation is on the same continuum as shame, except it's, a, it's much more intense because it feels like um, when you know you've been humiliated, you also know that someone intended to do it. Someone intended to would push your nose into the dirt and they wanted you to hurt. They wanted you to look bad. They wanted you to be exposed to, to other people as being bad. And so that's usually part of abuse. When someone tries to humiliate us, there is a natural instinct to fight back. There is an intrinsic um, rage reaction that accompanies humiliation. Now, typically, rage is uh, dissociated because in the moment, of course, when you're being abused by a parent or someone bigger than you, you can't afford to use it. And in the case of a, of a parent, an abusive parent, you can't even really afford to know that they intend to harm you, and that's why they're doing it. And so shame is a way to tell oneself um, is, to, is to make confusing experiences of someone that you need hurting you. There becomes a, a one-note way of making that coherent, which is say, oh, I'm just, I must have done something wrong. I'm, I'm just bad, you know, they, and that's why they're treating me like this. They don't really want to hurt me. They're just doing it because I did something bad or that I am bad. Humiliation is, the re, is realizing that the motive of the abuser was to hurt you. That's so hard to sit with. I think there's so much truth in that and 
in in some ways it feels so explicit and obvious and in other ways it feels like really at the root of things that's really hard to hold on to. It, it, really, it really is stark, isn't it? And, and that's why dissociative people have a hard time with it because um, it's easier to make sense out of what happened to you when you just think to yourself, well, I, I was just a bad per- bad kid. A lot easier. The, the idea, even just the concept saying out loud um, that they wanted me to hurt, that they wanted me to be exposed to people and things. It's just... Um, yeah, it's really difficult. That's really raw. It really is very raw. And that, and that's why people sit in shame for so long, because the alternative is not viable. Now, so another axis of shame defense is using that rage and so we'll on rare occasions we see did folks externalizing rage you have protector altars for example who come out and hurt people i used to see that in prison when i work with dissociative folks um but most of the time the rage is turned inward and so there's a tax self so that axis is attack self, attack other. Attack self or attack others. I see that um, also sometimes in um, sort of the politics of the community of that, that um, rage coming out in a way that is to attack or to discredit or to undo the things that are foundational to um, what therapy is, to where therapy can help. So whether that is um, clients sort of sabotaging their own therapy in different ways or their own progress in different ways or... um, the difference between wanting to improve care through lived experience, for example, or um, that the trauma drama of uh, attacking in ways that are not effective or helpful communication. And I don't mean disrespect to anyone or, or even meaning to get into that so much other than I see it happening in the community and I can't not acknowledge that, that there's a difference between advocating for change and rage that is only attacking. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people get caught up in that quite a bit. I mean, as a, as a therapist, I feel rage all the time about, about the people that hurt my patients. I do, I, I feel it. And a lot of times, my patients are very phobic about about that rage for a number of reasons. One is that um, um, they don't it, because having that rage means that you understand that the person that hurt you meant to do so, and that was their primary motive. Um, the other imped- the other impediment to that. Uh, or the reason they fear fear, um, the rage itself is because they don't want to become like their abuser. 
children, they're always afraid of becoming like that because they have certain feelings they don't want to acknowledge. And it's a natural response. And a lot, because a lot, a lot of them have, you know, at some point they begin to have fantasies of hurting their abusers. And that's very common. And they're afraid of it because they're afraid they're going to become like them. And uh, most of my, I, most of my patients don't have the capacity to do that. I'm not saying I've never had one that could, uh, but most of them can't. And I will usually tell them, okay, you, you, have, you have this fantasy of walk me through it. Tell me what it's like for you. And that usually is very helpful because it helps them know that actually talking that through, um, talking through the feelings of it or the actions of it, they know that they really couldn't do it. Um, many times they are surprised when I tell them, you know, when they have this issue and I say, you know, as, as you, as you told me so many things of what happened to you and who did it to you, I've had fantasies very similar because I care a lot about you. And I, I find myself having thoughts about hurting your abusers too. Or taking them to court or you know doing whatever having retribution that's pretty normal for us humans that's so interesting i think that i don't know i mean i don't know what i'm aware of or not still but i don't know or i'm not aware of um any kinds of fantasies like that myself because <clears throat> to me it feels so big and dangerous that i couldn't win but that takes me back to that shame cycle of yeah. where it's being used as a weapon to keep me <laughs> under control and things like that. What I yeah. have said a lot, even on the podcast, is that I don't want to identify with my rage and don't want to be that kind of advocate because for me, it does feel like becoming the perpetrator and I don't want to to be that. And... Um, it's interesting in, with what you've shared about those who do identify with their rage. Um, I've even, I've even talked to someone who was all about their rage and very proud of their rage. And they're like, this isn't about shame and it's not about hurt. I'm not hurt. I'm not hurt. But they're expressing pain and struggle. And as they came to terms with that in their own therapy, to circle back to that conversation and like not realizing they were literally acting out what they said they were not having. And we all, we all do that. I mean, that's part of the association. Yeah. 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 So that's how it becomes a shame defense, right? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But the feelings, it's the feeling itself is not defensive. That's a pretty natural reaction to being treated like that. Right. Well, and that's what I said to that person was, I, yeah. I just don't want to identify with the rage, but that's, that's not a moral issue. It doesn't make me a better person. It's that I'm still afraid of rage. <laughs> and, and I know that. So that's, uh, that's more therapy work for me, but right. oh my goodness, what, what a conversation that became about shame that wasn't at all related to stigma or being proud of myself or not proud of myself or, right. Um, 
pride in being or any of those things. That that was just um, the emotional expression of shame or avoidance of it in my case. Mm-hmm. Well, most of us avoid shame. We all have shame defenses. <laughs> I do too. So I guess my last question for you is I've heard you talk before about how some of that internalized process of shame, again, we're not talking about like ashamed of myself or stigma, but this shame dynamic from relational trauma, from deprivation, from abuse, neglect, all of that, um, and shame being used as a weapon when we're little, how that leads to internally as a system that covertness that can happen from avoidance of other parts or avoidance of awareness all of that can you speak to that just a little bit well you know shame is covert and because we we it's something it 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 invokes hiding that's what it really does to us and so processes that try to keep us hidden are usually covert and um Protector states who sort of um, are in charge of maintaining that dynamic of hiddenness, uh, they're hidden also. They don't like being visible. And it's why in in psychotherapy, we don't really hear from protector alters until until we get some real traction going. And um, uh, when attachment begins to form, in that relationship, that's when you see protectors start to uh, become more active. And again, they might do it in a hidden way. Um, many times I will call them out, uh, especially if I'm beginning to see signs of that symptomatically. And I will, I, I will talk through to them. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure someone is there that uh, is objecting to what we're doing here in therapy. And I'd appreciate it if uh, if you could tell me what your objections are, because I'm sure you have a lot of valid points. So I try to invite uh, when I know there's covert um, um, dynamics going on in the mind like that. I usually call it out. I think that that's an example. I mean, ultimately, that's an example of attunement in therapy. I I yes. can think of my my first therapist. Um, oh, there was ultimately a pretty big rupture that um, really had to do with. There were other issues involved, but one of them was that we could not have some of those negative thoughts or feelings, but because she could not deal with it, I could not learn how to deal with it. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's very frustrating, and I hear that story a lot, and um, it, it's very frustrating that, um, um, you know, that I'm sure you could attest that... Um, when you're in therapy and um, you are exhuming things that you're not used to either seeing yourself or having, let alone having someone else see, um, that there is tremendous anxiety that goes with it. 
And typically what happens in a therapeutic relationship, at least if there is some kind of relational traction, is that the therapist begins to feel that anxiety too. And it becomes contagious, just like shame is contagious. And, um, and if a therapist isn't aware of that, they, they tend to vilify their, their client and they'll say, well, they'll, and they'll say they're being resistive or they'll, they'll say they're too negative or whatever it is. But it's very frustrating because that, that, those moments invariably come in good therapy. And if you don't know how to, to work through them, then things just get stuck and they, and they get to, you know, they, things get so, um, uh, the process becomes very negative and many times ends therapy. So I'm very aware of that dynamic and it happens routinely in people who don't understand that. Oh, so many pieces to put together. So many pieces to put together. Is there anything else that you would want to share today or that you could direct clinicians to if they want to learn more about shame for clinicians specifically? Well, there's been a lot written about shame. You know, Martin Dorhe has done a tremendous job. He, he's the person that I really first started to appreciate the, um, um, how shame and humiliation work. Um, that I was describing to you, um, and he had a great article in the, in the uh, Journal of Trauma and Dissociation on that in 2017. Um, um, uh, Rich Sheffitz is very articulate about how shame works in in uh, traumatized people, and uh, he's. Uh, it describes it in great detail. Um, the idea of shame being regulatory, regulatory is, is sort of my creation. And um, uh, my paper has not been published yet. It's sort of languishing, <laughs> but, but it'll get there. Um, um, but there, there's, a, there's a lot of literature now on shame and trauma. And... Uh, um, those are two, two places. Oh, I should say my friend Ken Bonneau has written a lot about it. He doesn't have a lot of experience in dissociation, but he does talk about relational trauma and shame and how that works. He just came out with a book. Um, so I'd recommend that too. I'm just looking at it now. Shame, pride, and relational trauma. Ken Bonneau. Nice piece. Yes, he's the one who talked about pride and being, meaning pride is in dignity of self. And yeah, um, right. that is that is some good stuff in there. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing with us. Hey, sure. It's a pleasure, Emma. Good to, good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Your support really helps us feel less alone while we sort through all of this and learn together. Maybe it will help you in some ways too. You can connect with us on Patreon by going to our website at www.systemspeak.org. If there's anything we've learned, it's that connection brings healing. We look forward to connecting with you.